Well, let me invite you to turn now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, a little confession, I was planning to preach through this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, in one sermon, and somehow it's going to be three. I'm not really sure how that happened, <laughs> but I think that just so much, uh, so many great things in this chapter, even though it's a little bit of a different chapter, as I mentioned last week, not your Psalm 23 portion of, of Scripture, but nonetheless an extremely important text. And so we just want to focus on the middle paragraph here together this morning. Uh, We began last week by noting that the Bible likens the church to a human body made up of many members or parts. And uh, sometimes there's an unrepentant member of the body that actually needs to be removed, much like a surgeon would remove an appendix that's about to burst and maybe infect other organs of the body. But a surgery like that seems very minor compared to what happened to a man by the name of Aaron Ralston. Uh, In 2003, he was hiking through a canyon uh, in Colorado, and he actually ended up descending down into a little canyon at some point, and he inadvertently, in that process, dislodged an 800-pound boulder above him, and as that boulder came down, it smashed his one hand, and then ended up pinning his other arm against the canyon wall. And he tried everything he could to try to get out. He tried to dislodge the boulder, uh, all sorts of things, but he was stuck. And so not being able to free himself, he spent the next five days sipping on the little bit of water that he had brought uh, in his pack. He also had two burritos that he very slowly nibbled on, just rationing out. He got out his camcorder, whatever he had at that time, and uh, even made some videos for his family, basically saying goodbye. He realized he was just going to die a very miserable death pinned there in that canyon. Nobody was going to find him. He prepared to die, and eventually, though, though he had tried to think of everything he could to get out, he realized that maybe there was actually a way. He'd even, at one point, tried to amputate his arm, but realized that the little small knife that he had, there's no way he's going to get through through his bone. But he realized, maybe I can break the bone in my arm. And so he reached up, grabbed the boulder, torqued his arm, and snapped both of the bones just below his elbow. Snapping there both of those bones... Uh, He then got out his little pocket knife and began to saw at his arm with a two-inch dull blade. It was literally do or die for him. I either break my arm and I start cutting through this, run the risk of bleeding out. I have to do something or I'm not going to make it. And that's how serious it is when a church is attached to an unrepentant member. We are talking something grave and extremely serious. This will kill the church. If something is not done. And often churches to their own danger fail to deal with sin in their midst. And uh, we, we began to look at that last week in 1 Corinthians 5. It makes it quite clear that the church actually has to take decisive action against sin. Unrepentant sin. Last week we looked at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you may recall that there is a, a man in Corinth unrepentantly carrying on an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And instead of dealing with that problem in Corinth, the Corinthians were arrogant. And they may have been arrogant about the sin in their midst, or they may have just been spiritually arrogant like we saw in the first four chapters of the book. They think they're just these elite Christians crushing it. And Paul highlights in the first five verses two major concerns. First, we noted last week that a church could be unbelievably compromised. And that could start with an individual member with sin in their life. 
And then the whole church could become compromised as well by, by tolerating that and not dealing with it. A church could be unbelievably compromised. We saw in verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 to 5, we saw that a, a church must remove evil members from its midst. And those verses, verses 3 to 5, kind of detailed what that should look like. And as we saw last week, that action was taken, uh, primarily the focus there was for the sake of the man. So that at the end of the day, when, when the day of the Lord comes, uh, when he stands before God as his judge, he would be ready for that day. He would be restored to the Lord. The action that the church was to take by removing this man from its midst was intended to be remedial. It was intended for this man's benefit so that he might be restored to God. But today we'll see that that action of removing this man from their midst, and any time a church needs to do that, that action needs to be taken not just for the sake of the person, but for the sake of the church. So with that in mind, we want to note one additional concern this morning that Paul highlights from this, this uh, chapter. But before we do, let's just read all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read it, ask you to follow along, beginning there in verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Last week we looked at two major concerns. We want to add a third to that here today. A church must protect its purity, identity, and health. It's not just about this man and his spiritual condition, though that's extremely important. It's about the church and its condition. In verses 6 to 8, God gives a few expectations for churches that want to please him. And they want to protect their purity. They want to be healthy. They want to be strong. They want to be vibrant. They want to be spiritually alive and living on mission. What expectations does God have for us as a church, if that's our desire, and, and we find ourselves in a situation with an unrepentant member. Well, I just want to give you three expectations from verses 6 to 8. The first is, as a church, we have to realize the danger of one unrepentant member. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The presence of one unrepentant brother is extremely dangerous to the entire church. Just one. One guy. Carrying on this sinful lifestyle unrepentantly and still involved in the life of the church. We use the phrase, the power of one, and we we use that in a positive sense, right? The power of one. And God wants you to realize the power of one actually negatively in the church. What could one person do destructively in the church? And he gives us a really helpful analogy. He uses the analogy of leaven and bread making. Uh, When you hear the word leaven, you might think of yeast. Yeast helps make bread rise. Uh, You might think yeast, but leaven and yeast actually aren't quite the same thing. Yeast, uh, like what we use today, they didn't really have that in in the ancient world. Well, they had it, but you couldn't go to the grocery store and just buy a bunch of pure yeast. It wasn't that easy. It wasn't readily available in the ancient world. And yeast, we would typically think, like, that's a pretty pure item. Where leaven, that wasn't so much the case. Leaven, in distinction from yeast, was actually made by taking and and keeping back uh, some dough, actually from the bread that you were making, keeping back a piece from the previous day or the previous week's dough, and then storing it in some type of suitable conditions, and then often adding juice to it, so that the process of fermentation would begin. And you can imagine if that's what was going on day after day, week after week in the ancient world, I mean, that dough, if not careful, it could become contaminated, it could become gross, it could make you quite sick. Which explains why this is such a a good image that God gives us here. When the leaven was added to a new lump of dough, that leaven would permeate and leaven the whole lump. It might be very similar as if you were to make sourdough bread today. But to the point, the bad influence of the unrepentant man would spread like leaven through the whole church. The whole lump of dough. And the church in Corinth, they're retaining this. They're retaining this bad influence that would eventually spread. And God is speaking to them about the corrupting power of sin. One person, unrepentant, what that will do to the whole church. Maybe I could give you a really gross illustration. And I think gross is quite appropriate because it's going to be connected to sin. Each year, it is inevitable in our home that one of our kids will get sick. Right? And that within probably a matter of just a few hours or maybe a couple days, that sickness is literally going to make its way through our whole house. A couple years back, one of our kids, who was still a toddler confined to the crib, started vomiting in the middle of the night. And you know how it is as a parent. You hear that, you jump out of bed, you rush into the room. Brittany and I rushed in, we cleaned the carpet, we cleaned the crib, we changed the sheets, we changed the kid's clothes, we wiped down the kid, and then off the bed, we all went, right? You know the drill. You, most of you have been there. Fifteen minutes later, the same sound, right? And we cleaned the carpet, and we cleaned the crib, and we cleaned the sheets, and we wiped off the kid, and off the bed, we all went. Fifteen minutes later, fifteen minutes later, fifteen minutes later, and you reach this point that we reached where you're now exhausted, you're frustrated, you may be a little bit angry at this point, you're out of bedding, you're out of clothes, and you're out of carpet cleaner. Like there's nothing left. This, this cannot happen one more time. And so finally I grabbed a little bucket, I grabbed a sleeping bag, and I plopped down on the floor next to the crib, saying to myself, next time I hear this child make a noise, I'm going to get up and I'm going to catch it. Nothing else is going to get on the carpet. Or on the sheets or whatever. 
Well, you can imagine, I mean, you're, you're living so close. You're doing those sorts of things. You're cleaning up your kid's mess. Within 24 to 48 hours, that sickness had made its way through the whole house. I'm cleaning up this mess thinking, you know, I probably already have this thing. It's already happened. You can't live in the same house. You can't sit down at the same table, meal after meal, and eat the same food and and hug each other and show affection and just live your family life. Without that happening, without the sickness making its way all the way through the house, and that's the church. In fact, that's one of the images God gives us of the church, that we are the household of God. We're the family of God. Our, Our lives should be intertwined. And if they're not, that's a problem. And we're living our lives intertwined and, and together. And when sin enters the house, when sin enters the home, and it, it goes unchecked and it's not repented of, it just permeates and it, its influence makes its way, its way through the house and the whole family gets defiled. And it's like, don't you see, God says, you have to realize the danger of one unrepentant member. Don't sit there and think, That unrepentant sin in your life or in your friend's life is not a big deal. It's a huge deal. And and when when that's what's going on in your life, like there are other people whose whose spiritual well-being is at stake. So what do we do about it? And that leads us to a second expectation and, and an expectation that's come up multiple times in this text already. Second expectation is to remove unrepentant members from the body. Verse 7 begins, cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven here is being used as a reference to this man. Remove the incestuous man. Sin is dirty and defiling and it must be cleaned out. Now obviously this isn't the first time God has given this command to Corinth. In fact, in this chapter, he's going to say it in one way, shape, or form four or five times. Remove this guy. Deliver him over to Satan. Cleanse out the old leaven. Purge this guy out from your midst. So this isn't the first time he's saying it or the last time, but what's significant here in verse 7 is his rationale. Why should the church remove him? And he gives us a couple of reasons there in verse 7. Why should the church remove him so that the church can be what it is? Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. What are you? Unleavened. What is the church? Well, in in Paul's analogy here, the church is a lump of dough. A pure, undefiled, new lump. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I love this verse. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. He's new. And the old has passed away. And behold, look, the new has come. We're not the people we once were. It's not like, you know, you have an old car and it's all rusted through. It's not running very well. Well, well, maybe we'll rebuild it and we'll get the Bondo out and patch up the holes and we'll give it a new paint job. It looks new. No, no, that's not what this is. If anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're not the people we once were. We didn't just get a new paint job. We are completely and totally new. We're completely different now. We've been born again. We're God's new people. We were once slaves to sin and we've been set free. Why else? 
Would God want the church to clean out unrepentant members from the body? Well, so the church can be what it is, but also because Christ has been sacrificed. That's the end of verse 7. For, it's explaining, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, the lamb of God, was offered as the perfect spotless lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice on the cross to save us from our sin and to save us from the wrath of God. And it's that sacrifice actually that makes us a new lump of dough. We, we weren't this new lump as he describes us until that happened. That's what brought it all about, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God is commanding us here to be what we are. We are new. And it's at this point in the text that it becomes extremely clear that Paul is not just using this, this metaphor of leaven in some kind of isolation. He's actually connecting it to the Jewish feast of Passover and the Jewish feast of unleavened bread. And by, what's connect, by connecting what's going on in Corinth to those two feasts, uh, Paul is making an unbelievable amount of implications. An unbelievable amount. In fact, more than I could probably flush out right now, but I want to try to just a little bit and, and help you connect a couple dots. So maybe I could begin with this idea of Passover. The Jewish feast of Passover recalls the tenth and final plague in Egypt. You remember uh, the children of Israel, uh, through Joseph and his family, had made their way to Egypt. And they were in Egyptian bondage as slaves to Pharaoh for 400 years. And finally, uh, God sends Moses on the scene. And Moses is there to uh, basically summon Pharaoh to let God's people go out of Egypt. And, and Pharaoh won't let them go. And so plague, God sends plague after plague after plague after plague. And finally, the 10th plague is warned of. The 10th and final plague, the angel of death, entered every home in, in Egypt and killed the firstborn son of every family with one exception. Even the firstborn of the animals were killed. But there was one exception to that. The death angel passed over every home that had the blood of, a, of the sacrificial lamb applied to both sides of the door, the doorposts, and also the top. And so the Passover remembers that, how, how the, the, the sacrificial lamb protected God's people who trusted and believed and obeyed. But the Passover also recalls God's deliverance of his people from bondage and slavery to Egypt. After that 10th plague, Pharaoh was like, go. You can go. You can you get out of Egypt. And Passover also recalls God's making a new nation out of the Jewish people. Out into the wilderness they went where God entered into a covenant with them. And they became his people. And he became their God. They were a new people, a new nation. And then you have this Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's recorded in Exodus 12 and 13. And that Feast of Unleavened Bread is actually part of this Feast of Passover. And it lasted for seven days. And on the first day, the Jewish people uh, would actually clean out and remove all the leaven from their home. And for the next seven days, they would eat unleavened bread. And if someone were to actually eat that, uh, they would be cut off from Israel. And this feast recalls how God brought out the people from Egyptian slavery. Let me read to you Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. It says, then, and, and as I read this verse, I just want you to listen in, in, uh, for the language of out, come out, brought out, that sort of language, because it's going to come up again and again. Exodus 13, verse 3 says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. For by a strong, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Some important symbolism happens in Scripture. In Scripture, Egypt is regularly used as a symbol or an illustration of the world. And leaven is regularly, even as we see in 1 Corinthians 5 here, regularly used as a symbol or illustration of sin. Look, with all that in mind, let's read verses 7 and 8 again. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's reminding the the Corinthians, listen, the church does not celebrate sin. That is not what we celebrate. We don't celebrate our old life. We don't celebrate our former worldly bondage and worldly behavior. We don't celebrate Egypt. We're done with that. That's not who we are anymore. And, And instead, the church celebrates the Passover, and we celebrate the Passover lamb. Not the literal feast like the Jewish people do, but what it represents. The church is God's household, and the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, has been applied to our door, we might say. And we've been delivered. We've been brought out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And we've been brought out of the world. And we've been delivered from our slavery to sin. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer bound. Now we're God's new people and he calls us saints. He calls us holy ones. We are a new people. And Jesus Christ is our Lord now. And just like the Jewish people cleaned the leaven out of the house, the church cleans the unrepentant members, the leaven, out of the house too. Not because we're proud. No, we're, all, we're a people fighting our sin. God calls us saints, but we're, we're trying to live that reality out still, and it's a struggle. We don't cleanse out the leaven because we're proud or we're better than other people, but because we're new. And Jesus gave us new life, and that is our identity. And that must be protected, and that must be guarded. A third expectation And we read about this in verse 8. Celebrate the gospel in all of its effects. That is what the church does. We fight sin. We wrestle against it. We try to cleanse it out of our lives as individuals. And if it ever gets to the point where there's someone who won't repent, we, we can't stay in fellowship with that person. But we are a people who celebrate something. We celebrate the gospel in all of its effects. Verse 8 begins with, let us celebrate the festival. And he's referring there to Passover. The Christian life is a continual festival in which we celebrate something. We celebrate the Passover lamb. We celebrate the fact that a perfect spotless lamb was slain and his blood was spilt and it's been applied to our account for our benefit. We celebrate the fact that we've been delivered and freed from sin. And some of you, you don't, you don't have to think that far into the past, right? To, to, to what life was like before you were set free. You, some of you, you just think back one year in your life and what you were doing and what you were up to and what your life looked like. 
And some of you, maybe you've been saved for 20 years and you have to look a little bit further back into your past. But there was a time when you were a slave and you were bound and you were chained and you were shackled to your sin. And God set you free. He made you new. And you went from being a slave to a son of God. And there's newness of life. We are a new people. And we've been brought together in a family and it's special and it's unique and there's nothing like it. There's nothing comparable to it. Every church has its warts. Every church has its problems. Every church has its struggles. But we are God's people. And it's a very, very special gift from the Lord. We are God's new people. And so together we celebrate the gospel and all of its effects that Jesus Christ shed his blood for me and for you. And he set us free. He brought us out of bondage and made us new. And so every day, rain or shine, literally or metaphorically, is a day of celebrating our new life in Christ. Rain or shine. Good day or bad day. We are new. And we celebrate that. But Paul says you can't celebrate that with unrepentant members and sin and your life or theirs. Look at verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. Again, a reference to this man. The leaven of malice and evil and, and, and other types of sin. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The leaven was cleaned out of the house on the very first day of the feast. The feast of unleavened bread. The church cannot celebrate the gospel. It cannot celebrate the the Passover, so to speak. It cannot celebrate Christ's sacrifice with unrepentant members in its midst. And you cannot celebrate the gospel in your life with unrepentant sin there. You just can't do it. You, You can't simultaneously be living in sin and embracing your sin and celebrating the gospel at the same time. And so I would ask you, is there leaven in your life that needs cleaned out? I think about how the Jewish people on that first day, I mean, they're they going all through their house. Any little bit of leaven, we're finding it and we're cleaning it out meticulously. And that's what God wants all of us to do with our sin. Look at my house. Look at my home. Is there sin there? Get it out and celebrate the gospel. You can't celebrate with unrepentant members and sin, but you must celebrate with saints, with God's people and holiness. Verse 8 ends with these words. Celebrate the festival with unleavened, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Those are words that communicate that we should be the real deal. Sincerity and truth. We, we don't celebrate the gospel with hypocrisy and hidden sin and things that, are, that, that we're just kind of harboring there and don't want other people to see. We celebrate the gospel together in in sincerity and truth as the real deal. We celebrate it authentically. Over the last few days, we've noticed these tiny little bugs uh, all around our windows. We haven't quite identified what they are. We thought maybe they were little tiny baby hornets, and then we thought maybe they're fruit flies. We don't know what they are, but they're super, super tiny, small enough to make it through the screens on your windows. And uh, my wife came to me yesterday and said, you got to come see the living room bay window. And I walked up and looked. I mean, it's just dozens of these little bugs had gotten in. They're all over the window. They're, they're starting to make their ways down the walls and down the ceiling. And you're like, oh my goodness, like this is crazy. We don't want all these little bugs in our house. And so how do we get rid of them? I mean, we're not quite sure. And so we eventually came up with this brilliant idea that we would grab the vacuum and just start sucking them up. You know, every single one of them, dozens of them. And it was a little tricky, right? Like some of them you just 
But the other ones, it's like as soon as you get the vacuum close, they'd fly away and go over here and go over there. But we just meticulously, one after another, suck every single one of those up. We don't want those little nasty bugs in our house. They don't, they don't belong in our house. And after sucking those bugs up, we, we took the vacuum canister outside and dumped the little bugs where they belonged, outside the house. Because they're gross, they're dirty, they're bugs. They don't belong in the house with us. And you know what? That's precisely what God wants you and I to do with our sin. I don't care if this is tiny and small or enormous. It doesn't belong here. This does not belong in the house. This does not belong in the temple that God has placed me in. And God wants each and every one of us as individuals and for us to do this as a church. No, no, no. Wherever sin's at, we have got to fight it. We've got to remove it. It can't be here. And so as God's people, we should meticulously fight our sin. That's what we have to do. It's war. And every little bit has to go. A church must protect its purity, identity, and health. We are new gospel people. And I hope you're rejoicing in that. And we are most healthy when we live as we really are, as God's new, pure people. Um, much like last week, what, what do we do with a lot of this stuff? I mean, again, this is not Psalm 23. It's just like, oh, problems in the church in Corinth, and we could have those problems too. It's just not really a happy subject matter. I mean, the Passover, the gospel, yes, absolutely. But what do we do with a text like this? Well, much as I reminded you last week, I think God wants you to feel the weight and dirtiness of your sin. And somehow we become numb to that. I think... Sometimes even the longer that you're a Christian and you've had this new life in Christ and you kind of just take it for granted and sense like, yeah, it's bad. I shouldn't do that. It's not that big of a deal. I think God gives us some of these texts just so we'll, we'll feel the weight of that again. Yes, it is a big deal. Sin is dirty and sin is defiling. And we need to see it in contrast to the gospel. This is, this is, not, this is not the new life. This is not what we were saved for. It was something we're saved from. I think a text like this also is a reminder that you and I are not islands. You just, you just aren't. Even if you try to live your life that way spiritually, you're not an island. And this text reminds us of the corporate nature of the Christian life. Even with this metaphor with leaven, we are a family. And if you've got sin in your life and it's unrepentant, this whole body is... is Dealing with the effects of that, and frankly, we might not even know it. Whether you're, there's sin in your life that's hidden or known, it will defile all of us, and mine too. You are not a spiritual island, neither am I. And part of not being an island is that you may actually need to not just even just deal with your own sin, but you need to be there for your, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And there will be times. It's not like, yeah, maybe there will be a time when I need to do this. There will be times when you need to approach a brother or sister, someone in this body, and, and say, we need to talk. And points where, where you even need to say, listen, what you're doing is wrong. That's sin. What you're engaged in is, is morally defiling. God calls that sin. Or the decision you're making over here, this is not right. Or... You know, I, I want to assume the best of you, but best I can tell, like, it looks like you are headed down a very, very dangerous path. That's a ministry that we all need to have towards each other as family. Would you have that ministry with your son? 
If I saw my son doing something stupid that was going to cause him huge problems later in life or it was going to get him in all kinds of trouble or wreck his marriage in the future or something, as a father, am I just going to be like, yeah, dude, just figure it out. It's all good. No, like you're my son. You're family. You're my daughter. Like, And if my father spoke into my life or a, you know, a brother or sister, I, I need that. And that's what God wants us to do with each other. Also, just another, I think, helpful principle. If a church, this church or another church that you find yourself at someday is not willing to address moral compromise, it's not really that complicated. You need to leave. Because you and your family run the risk of defilement. That's, That's the principle given here. If sin is in the church's midst, everybody gets defiled. And you don't want to willingly just, yeah, yeah, invite, sign me up for defilement. Like, no. God's people must be pure. And if a church is not willing to take those hard steps to be that, that's not a place you want to be because it's extremely dangerous for you personally and your whole family. Don't expose yourself to that. I'd also encourage you with how you and I should pray. I want to pray, and I think you want to pray, God, would you reveal my sin? If this is as gross and bad and defiling as you say it is, and if it's as far-reaching and affects as many people as you say it does, well, I don't, I don't want that. And so God, would you, would you show me my own sin? Even sins that maybe in my stubbornness and callousness and unrepented living, I'm not even seeing and I'm even blind to now. God, would you show me that so that I can deal with it and I want to repent of it And I think we also should pray. And I find this an extremely scary prayer. It's one I don't really desire to pray that much, actually, as a pastor. But God, if there is sin in our midst, if there is sin in this body, and maybe that's not known, God, would you in your compassion and in your mercy, would you bring it to the surface? I don't really want to pray that prayer because if I pray that prayer and it comes to the surface, I think, well, that's complicated and now i got problems to deal with and maybe it's going to cause problems in the church and maybe it's just easy if it all just kind of stays under there. But God says if it's there, the church is being defiled. And I think we should pray, God, if there's sin in our midst, would you expose that? A great danger, I think, is that we would actually even be defiled And not be aware. And I'm reminded from this text. Let's celebrate the gospel. You can celebrate all kinds of things. You can make your life about all kinds of things. But we are a people who celebrates what God has done for us. That we were defiled. And God made us new. That though we were undeserving. Jesus Christ died on the cross. To pay the price for our sins. And maybe you sit here this morning. And you're like yeah like that's me. Like if I'm honest. I'm pretty super like defiled. And maybe I don't feel like I fit in in this place where you're talking about the church being pure. Well, that, that's like all of us. Before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're all dirty, we're all defiled, and we don't clean ourselves up and come to God. God did something for us to make us new and to change us. And what he did is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice to die on the cross and satisfy God's wrath for your sin and mine as a substitute in your place and in my place so that we could be right with God, our creator, and so we could be what we're described as in this text. And It's not something you work for. It's not something you do this and do that, and oh, now I'm a Christian because I did a bunch of good things. No, we're not saved that way. 
God says, repent and believe. That's what Jesus said. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ's sacrifice. That's it. What he did was enough to make you new and to make you clean. And maybe there's some of you here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not new. You're not clean. You could be. And you could be that before you walk out the door of this room today. If you would cry out to God and say, God, I am a sinner and I believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sins and that's enough, 100% enough to save me from my sins. I would invite you to do that if you haven't already done so. The church must take decisive action against sin. Aaron Ralston saw that his arm, after he broke both of his bones, he took out that multi-tool that he had been trying to move the boulder with. It was all beat up and battered and dull. And he took that multi-tool, got the two-inch blade out, and for over an hour, sawed at his arm, cutting first through skin. He cut through his tendons. He cut through a major artery, and at one point, even through a nerve. And finally, he was free. And began his journey back out of the canyon. He was eventually spotted by other hikers and then airlifted out by helicopter. He left part of his arm there in that canyon that day. But his life was spared. And there may be times in our church where we have to cut off an arm for the sake of the ongoing life of the body. And that's brutal. That's painful. That should hurt. And there may be times where you and I have to take drastic steps personally to purge out sin from our life. But we're new. God summons us to that. And so by God's grace, may we clean out the leaven of sin and celebrate the gospel. Would you bow your head with me at this time?